Hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Uh, welcome to it, folks. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And this evening, we have a great show of phone-in guests. And I want you to do me a favor out there, all of you listening. Go to Amazon.com right now. Type in The Line by Keith Farrell. Again, the book's name is The Line by Keith Farrell. I just finished it this morning. It's a quick read. It's a great read. And Keith and I go way back. So without further ado, I want to bring him on the airwaves. Keith, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Joey. Thanks for having me. Well, I at first, you know, was reading the book. For some reason, it made me want to listen to Drugged Out Aerosmith. I don't know why, <laughs> but it's it's not like the book's condoning Drugged Out Aerosmith. It's just it seemed like it might fit. I don't know. I don't know what I didn't. The book didn't really get into what the characters were necessarily listening to a lot, right? Mm-mm. No, I think uh, I think Black Rebel Motorcycle Club might be mentioned, but right. other than that. There are a few uh, drops, and for folks who are interested, and I, folks, you will be if you, especially all you voracious readers out there looking for a weekend read. Maybe you're taking a last minute trip down to the beach before it gets too cold. Uh, spend a weekend with this book or a day, it depends on how quickly you read. The line is an explosive and dark examination of the morality and social impact of the heroin epidemic that is ravaging our country, and. Keith, I, number one, I want to say I do, I really enjoy this. I was telling you off air, I was telling folks this morning to leave me alone, let me finish. This, the ending is amazing. The book really ramps up. Um, but I, I really appreciate it because the book is billed as examining the impact of heroin and, and addiction and many troubles we go through in life. But it never found throughout the, the story that it was a, a morality play by any means. I thought it was telling a story uh, just through the lens of actual people. Where did this the idea of this story begin for you? Well, you know, the idea began um, from a place of, of, of rage and hurt, uh, having seen people uh, that I know and love uh, deal with addiction, um, lose loved ones to addiction. Um, so, in a way, writing this book was a process it was a cathartic process for me of uh, dealing with a lot of that grief and anger uh, at this this larger-than-life problem. Well, and it really does grab a hold of multiple characters, multiple perspectives. And that's why it's so, I think, a quick read, is that even within a given chapter, you're jumping around from different perspectives. And the setting, you are initially from Connecticut. You've now, congratulations, moved down south. 
uh, to South mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, I I didn't realize things could get so you know rowdy in the nutmeg state. I mean, I had some friends from there, but my goodness, man. Um, I and in all seriousness, I I know somebody who escaped heroin addiction who lived happened to live in Connecticut. Um, mm-hmm. And it's amazing though, as I was reading it, I te- I messaged you this. This reminded me of rural Alabama. This could be almost anywhere in the rural United States. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And part of the reason why the, I chose to set the book uh, in a rural location, one which I was familiar with, is because I think a lot of times these rural communities, and I know everybody listening in Alabama can really identify with this, they don't, they get left out of the national conversation. Um, and sometimes, you know, the death tolls may be higher in the big cities because the populations are bigger, but the impact is actually greater on these small communities. Um, it's just devastating. And it, that, that's in terms of economics, in terms of drug use, all of it. You know, um, the economy's been thriving, but I know that you can go to many small rural communities in Alabama and up in Connecticut, and you don't really see that thriving economy. You see a lot of people who don't have enough work who, um, you know, they're struggling. And those are the conditions that drug addiction, corruption, and crime, like, thrive in. Absolutely. And and that's that's what's interesting to me. And there's one line that jumped out at me from the book, if you don't mind me reading it. It's, a, it's one sentence. Uh, the future mm-hmm. is a promise wrought with frailty. Yet many waste their lives waiting for a day that may never come. Uh, that, and I'm not going to give away the context of where that line came from, but it is uh, very powerful to me, and especially because I will give away one aspect in that the, it seems the the hard and really hardened drug dealers, and not the smart ones either. The it's, I've known some people with some little man, uh, a little man complex, kind of like the lord mm-hmm. over people. Uh, they like the idea of this town is in in shambles. This town is dilapidated. It'll never come back. That business mm-hmm. is booming when really the general health of society is down. Absolutely. And, you know, that theme connects very well to that line. Um, you know, life is frail. And a lot of times we don't address the the ugliness inside of ourselves or the ugliness inside of our own communities or as a society because we're afraid to face it. But by not facing that, we're not escaping the consequences. We're not, all we're doing is turning an eye to it and those consequences are gonna come either way. And life is frail. So why not embrace that and face what needs to be faced and live our lives not hiding from issues or hiding from things that are inside of us. Exactly. And really, that is, it's an internal look. Uh, And, you know, you mentioned something about how the population, the death toll, because the population is lower in a rural area. In a rural area, it it means that we're more reliant on one another. So the, uh, the ripple effect of a family member who's an addict or one guy or one or two houses in a rural community that are this pipeline for drugs. Mm-hmm. And it can can have these ripple effects that uh, I don't think people quite fathom at times. Oh, no. It's, it goes from, uh, you know, immediate relationships all the way to uh, 
psychological and sociological impacts, um, you know, demoralizing entire communities. Um, you know, it, it, it ramps up crime, which deters business and investment. It's a self-perpetuating cycle in, in and of itself. <sighs> and you raise this, uh, you know, this interesting point about, um, you know, the, uh, the small communities and, and, and how people rely on one another. And one of the things I really wanted to do with the book, um, even though it's set in a small community, was to draw that parallel to the larger um, crime and corruption that's sweeping through our country and albeit the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, if you recall, uh, you know, one of my favorite not major characters of the book is Hostetler, who is, uh, you know, this, this, we don't know much about him, but he's, he's, he's a guy who makes his money uh, running drugs and money up and down the coast. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, Hostetler points out to one of the characters in the book that in Connecticut, in the small towns, you got all the drugs you want. You can buy any, you can buy heroin, cocaine, but you don't have the crime that you see down by the border. You know, and the reason is, is that there's, a, there's a, this shared motivation um, in a lot of parts of this country and a lot of the rural communities to kind of, um, you know, keep drug dealing and crime a little bit more under, under the covers because mm. they know that suburban America wants drugs, but they don't want the violence and the bloodshed. But the problem is, is that just because you're doing drugs in rural Connecticut doesn't mean that you're not actually contributing to the violence down on the border. It's all one big black market and it's thriving through mutual channels of corruption and, um, you know, it's just spreading like a virus. Well, and, and this is where the, I, again, I, I think the book does this subtly, but powerfully. Um, and again, folks, the book is The Line. Go to Amazon.com right now and type in The Line by Keith Farrell. You can also go to KeithFarrell.com. And the book really takes this idea of, of the crime and the black market, the illegal market and drugs, but then you're also going into the nature of addiction and of not just addiction, like somebody's a junkie and hooked on a particular substance, but somebody might have something going on in their life that drives them to that before they ever get hooked. It's not just a chemical, mm-hmm. physical thing. Um, how much... Was this coming personal experience research when you're looking into the effect of of drugs, but also abuse on parents with children, and how this whole that's can even if it's one parent or or one sibling, it can really infect a whole family. Absolutely, and that's one of the themes that I really wanted to unpack. Um, and I I uh, comes from. Uh, uh, you know, mostly, you know, every writer will tell you they write what they know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been lucky enough not to have battled addiction, but I have had several battles with substance abuse um, and, uh, you know, bouts of uh, binge drinking and stuff uh, in more uh, depressive times that I've, I've had to overcome. But I've traveled in circles and lived a life where, <clears throat> when I was younger, where uh, a lot of people did use and abuse drugs. Um, you know, a counterculture kind of lifestyle, if it were. And um, you end up getting to know people and you love people and, um, you know, either before or after they're addicts. And you, you see these are these are people. They uh, 
They might not be making decisions you agree with, but they they come. Those decisions come from someplace, and a lot of times it's a a place of a lot of pain and a lot of confusion, um, even untreated or undiagnosed uh, mental illness. Right, and. I mean, the, the words and some of the most touching parts of the book, at least, that really pulled at my heartstrings are when somebody's trying to get better, but they feel like they don't deserve it. They feel guilty in some way, and then they feel judged. It, and there's a lot of things that can be lost in translation because of those those emotions that haven't been worked through. Right, and I really wanted that struggle reflected through Megan, who's the, the lead female character, and. Her struggle to to want to get better, and um, you know, a lot of times people who aren't addicts themselves, they don't understand when they have family or friends who are addicts what the nature of that uh, struggle is really like. Right. And they expect once they get their chip and they've been clean for three months or six months or whatever that that battle's over and that person is <clears throat> just going to be normal. And the reality is that those expectations actually make it harder on the individual. To maintain uh, recovery. Oh, absolutely! It's it's it builds up. It's like how long can I go before I crack here? Um, right, I, and then everybody's going to judge me and hate me. And right, they're just waiting for me, and and I know they're just waiting for me to screw up. They, you know, they, right. So you create you create this condition, which is almost you know your pressure. It's almost unduly pressuring somebody back towards the lifestyle that they're trying to get away from. Absolutely. And, you know, I was talking last night, and this was in the context of horror movies. The creepiest, scariest thing to me is when children are included, like in The Shining. You know, kids at the... And also in this setting, um, kids being involved in the book, kids being caught in the middle of this craziness. Uh, Mm -hmm. It actually reminded me of a story in my own life. Uh, This was in Auburn, Alabama. Fairly nice part of Auburn. And our neighbor had to run to the store real quick, and we had gotten to know her, and we're sophomores in college. And she said, can you watch my my daughter for a second? And we're like, that's how well we knew each other. We trusted one another. We're like, of course, Mm because we were hanging out outside. And all of a sudden, she kind of goes, we're sitting on the side porch. There's no fence, and she sort of chases a ball and runs in the front of the house and without much time going by we hear her scream we're like oh my goodness a little girl screaming we run to the front of the house luckily she's completely fine but what she's screaming at is this ah, young adult man who is passed out on the driveway opposite ours his, oh, no. his pants are falling off his his backside uh unfortunately his whitey tidy's had a brown spot i mean it's all the signs of this is uh, somebody passed out from too much heroin. Mm-hmm. And and luckily, we had a neighbor in our cul-de-sac who was a parole officer who said, I actually know who that kid is. Um, I'll handle it. But it's just, it was jarring in that moment. Like, we're having a great Saturday afternoon, watching somebody's kid. We're just, you know, it, we're probably thinking, getting ready for the next football game. We might have been having a couple beers. That's another thing that's interesting in the book. People can drink a beer or, God forbid, smoke a joint, but it's not like it's the end of the world. But then you realize you are that close to right around the corner. There is that sort of being, it's almost like slow suicide. It, to see mm-hmm. that is jarring, absolutely jarring. 
and the way we lie to ourselves. You know, we act like there's these two different worlds. You know, this you know, one of the one of the many applications of the title is we like to pretend there's a line between our world and this this world of of evil deeds and drug use and in and you know malicious uh predatory drug dealing but in reality there's there's not that much of a line there's a lot of uh there's a lot of blur there and there's a lot of overlap and um people casually consume some substances and it's socially acceptable and other ones you know not so much and uh that's even a changing scale here in in the united states and north america now too with uh cannabis oh yeah uh, and it really is a, a sliding scale, but I mean, I've had nights where, you know, it's just the usual American pastime. We're drinking a lot, and mm-hmm. there's, I've asked people this before, and it sounds like you might have had the experience where a party, say it's a party atmosphere, and it goes from we're having a lot of fun to, to put it bluntly, somebody could die tonight. It is a weird, mm-hmm. it, there is no clear line there. Yeah. Unless, Especially uh, when you... Go yeah, on. when you run in the right circles, especially, right? Right, right. And I mean, I mean, it's not. I'm not saying that there was a night where I was eating, you know, drinking wine and, and snacking on cheese, but you know right. what I mean. Like, if it's yeah. your big, well, you know, it's closer. It's closer to home than we all like to think, right? I mean, like, it's probably no more than two degrees of separation from any person listening to this radio right now. Right. Somebody you know knows somebody who's who's addicted to something if not somebody you know directly well and if not somebody's addicted somebody who's who's died and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be oxycontin it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be heroin it could be they died drunk driving they, they yeah exactly died, you know utter depression i mean there is mm-hmm. a, a lot of reasons and this again the book touches on all of these but i want to come back to a point i made earlier at no point mm-hmm. did I really feel like it was a morality play. And for the audience's sake, what I mean by that is it's, I wasn't felt like I was given a lesson, like being no. beaten over the head by any means. And it's more like you sort of set the parameters of what each character was dealing with, what each character cares about, where they essentially like to draw their own lines, and then mm-hmm. let those characters collide. And so it's a great test of these different boundaries these people have drawn for themselves absolutely and you're right and um at no point is the book ever intending to come down with one side or the other or lecture anybody about their views on drug use or morality um you know it's 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 regarded or you know i like to describe it as a moral examination because i think that it it, it shows the different views of and perspectives surrounding drug use and drugs in the sale of drugs, illicit sale of drugs, um, from multiple facets. So you get different perspectives from different characters, and I think in some ways, I hope that it challenges everybody's perception at some point. Absolutely, because, I mean, dirty cops. Dirty cops don't exist. That's just a paranoid thing you only see in movies. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, there, yeah, there's just so many different angles to this, and uh, I'm going to hit a break here soon. And when we come back, I, I do want to get into uh, some of the what I would consider pretty fun. It's heavy, but there is some compelling action in the book. I, I don't want folks to get the wrong idea in that there is a because it's the illegal drug trade, and because there are some folks who really don't have a line in terms of how far they'll go. Let's just say there's some action in the story. 
Um, that oh, yeah. is, is, it's, it's very, very good, folks. Um, again, the book is The Line. Tonight we're talking to Keith Farrell, the author. Uh, you can find it on Amazon right now. I picked it up on my Amazon app right after I talked to Keith a couple weeks ago. But you can go to Amazon.com. Also, be sure to visit Keith Farrell's website, KeithFarrell.com. I hope that's simple enough for you folks out there. I, I know it is. Well, I mean, there might be a few simpletons. Anyway, um, before we hit this break, though, Keith, I need to tell folks about my good friend, uh, Eddie Bader, with the Goodson Group. He is a, uh, he's a buyer's agent, or he wants to be your buyer's agent. I don't know if you're a homeowner or, or continuing to rent right now. I'm unfortunately continuing to rent, but I'm working on building up that credit. And the guy I'm working with is Eddie Bader, and he says he wants to be a buyer's agent for people out there because he looks out for the best interest of the buyers. And the, you know, the real the best thing about being a buyer's agent is here in the state of Alabama on these sort of residential sales, the seller pays. So, I mean, he will work out, Eddie Bader will with the Goods Group, he'll work out your closing costs. You know, if the house needs a few repairs and he takes off the the weight, the burden, it's always going to be emotional when you're spending that much money, when you're jumping into that sort of commitment like buying a home. That's where Eddie can give you that outside perspective. I've heard people talk about when they go see a therapist. You know, you know that knot you're picking at? Just look at the, the other side of it. Maybe you need to pull there. Well, Eddie can do that when it comes to a real estate deal, give you all sorts of options. So, folks, if you're looking for a buyer's agent or good real estate agent, Eddie Bader with the Goods and Group, his number 322-0662. Again, that number 322-0662. And uh, coming back, we're we'll continue to discuss uh, the book The Line by Keith Farrell, my guest this evening. Well, we got to pay the bills and continue to pay the bills going out to Aerosmith's Draw the Line. Joey Clark. Joey Clark. Uh, welcome back to it, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. If you can't catch whole episodes live or you're maybe listening on other platforms, be sure to catch the show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. Working on getting on other platforms, but just search for the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Hit subscribe. And if you really like the show, leave a review. And tonight, I want you to do the same for my guest I'm talking to over the phone, Keith Farrell. Uh, go to Amazon.com right now. Search for Keith Farrell, The Line. Uh, give the book a purchase, especially a Kindle Unlimited. Download it. It is, it's a swift read, but in the best way possible uh, because the action will grab you. Uh, different people from different perspectives in the book really wrestling uh, with all sorts of moral themes, addiction, uh, depression, uh, just different burdens of life. But in particular, Keith, uh, there are there is an examination of the role of violence in this world, in particular this world of of addiction, of the illegal drug trade. Um, you also bring up veterans and what they've gone through. Uh, what is kind of your experience talking to vets or knowing any personally? Because that is a key aspect of the book. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I uh, have a couple of friends, uh, including uh, my best friend who uh, served, and I've had family members who have served. And um, <clears throat> you know, I really wanted to touch on, you know, this this idea of these men um, who we've trained um, to to basically be killing machines, and how a lot of times our society um, doesn't seem to give them the help or support they need when they come back and they're trying to adjust to a normal way of life and how hard that can be for some people, especially in these rural communities where there's no job opportunities and it's just like, what are you going to do? Right. And it, I mean, and in a way it's like, okay, I'm not in theater anymore. I'm back in the so-called normal civil society. Um, but I, I shared a quote with you off air. I'll share it with the audience now. People sleep peaceably in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. And in a way, these men, especially those who go and serve overseas, I, I'm living with one who served a, a few tours in Iraq and Afghanistan right now. I mean, it depends on their experience. But it's it, once that switch has been flipped, that well, that line has been crossed, it can sometimes be difficult to come to terms with it, to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's uh, one of the other themes of the book is, um, you know, how do, how do guys like this, um, you know, we see so many veterans who uh, end up, um, you know, washing out of society almost. And, you know, how do they, uh, how do they get to that point? And, um, you know, how are we failing them if that's what's happening? But isn't violence always wrong? <laughs> Well, I think if you're having read the book and uh, quoted Orwell uh, just a moment ago, you you know that I don't think violence is always wrong. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, I think that Orwell quote is quite suited for a couple characters um, in the book, and it's uh, it, it's an unfortunate um, consideration. I think when it comes to these type of issues, is that in some cases um, force is necessary. However, at the same point, I wanted to offer uh, compelling stories from addicts' point of views as well so that we realize that not every addict is someone who we need to use force with. Right, right. Well, and- in fact, I would say addicts in general are not the enemies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, predatory, predatory dealers in larger networks that prey on addicts are, um, but even the solution there isn't cut or dry. Right, and it's also interesting how organized violence or organized force in in the book, the government, so to speak, you you focus on particular agents of the government. Like you have great, the main character is a state trooper. He's a fantastic mm-hmm. character. Uh, you have detectives from different police departments and, and sheriff, and but there's always a mention, and I'll just leave it out there that oh, the state's going to come in, the feds will come in. There's Rico, you know, there's a Rico thing going on. It's interesting how the government as an organization, how little it does in the book. Right. It's, um, and again, I wanted to give a, a, a hint of these larger bureaucracies and larger um, networks of crime that were, that were basically impacting this community. But I wanted to make sure the story focused on these characters, their experiences, and how it impacted the community around them. Not, um, not get lost in the weeds exploring um, the larger uh, subject matter, which could be possible in future books. 
Well, and also uh, coming back to the the role of violence in the book, it's this, especially as I'm getting into the thick of it, this could easily be a, a movie, man. This could easily, like the way you write the action. Um, I'm not going to give any of it away. The way you write the action is very compelling, folks. Um, it, it had me going, oh my goodness, what is this person going to do? Because uh, at a certain point, you start rooting for some things to happen to some bad people. I'll just put it that <laughs> way. Um, and, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's in everybody. We can be this like pie in the sky, idealistic. You know, if we just treat people well, we'll uh, you know be be treated well. But at the end of the day, there are some people that are no damn good. And I'm not talking about groups of people. I'm not generalizing. I'm talking about there are certain individuals who have no line other than I'm going to take what is mine. I'm going to I'm going to force myself on other people, and they have to be stopped. Yep. And, uh, you know, what I wanted to do with Dwight was take a character who was the farthest from somebody you might consider who's willing to take cross that line and see what are you going to do to get a guy like that mm. to become a guy who's more like, you know, Dickie or Randy in the book. Right, just a, a hair trigger away from being set off as opposed to somebody who's like, no, oh, I won't ever do that. And it's, yeah, you build right. it up. You build it up. Uh, and it, it's, I don't know, it's fascinating to me as well, like within, say, I, I love how you, you took the time to examine within, say, a crime family, how they're, it, 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 we, we're so weird as human beings. We'll mimic and idealize whatever's right in front of our face. So say, mm-hmm. folks, you're in a, a family that is a bunch of criminals, and your big brother is, or your father, whatever it is, you're looking up to them, and you idealize that. It's We talk about it here when crime comes up in Montgomery, uh, that if a family life falls apart, if the home falls apart, these young boys in particular will find a family on the street. And they will almost feel bad for not living up to the, the same cruelty or willingness to use violence that these people that come to regard as family will. Exactly. I, and I wanted to examine that and, uh, you know, how, how, the, uh, how that kind of psychology or sociology in groups um, kind of enforces and perpetuates this, this cruelty. Well, and I, I applaud you for being able to put yourself in that mindset. I suppose we all have an element of it, uh, but I, the the one type of character, the one type of person out there, the almost the sadist. I do not, I do not understand it. I guess I'm not built that way. Um, that sort of enjoying inflicting power on inflicting suffering on other people. Right. Well, I've studied sociology. Um, I've studied psychology, amongst other things. And um, you know, my my uh, my fascination comes from um, you know even with those individuals understanding basically what makes them who they are. And uh, I didn't want to do that too much in that book in the book with certain characters because I didn't want to risk um, coming across as if I was trying to give them a sympathetic. Viewpoint, but I did even with the most malevolent characters explore a little bit of their background, and I think uh, the reader can extrapolate and imagine what kind of circumstances they uh, they grew up in and came from. 
Well, and, and I say I personally don't understand, but I can imagine, given different circumstances, that, you know, I mean, we are, to a certain extent, malleable. And uh, mm-hmm. that they're... That, and that, again, it comes back to the, the central point you made earlier, that the line is not very clear, whatever line we're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. That if you once you get... You can be easily dragged into a, a part of life, a part of this world... Um, that you didn't expect to find yourself in. And it's interesting how, if you haven't prepared yourself, you don't know how you're going to react. I mean, you might crap your pants and, you know, curl up, or you might react violently very quickly without even thinking. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, well, how, I'm interested now about the process. Um, I, okay. I got a slight glimpse of uh, process. This, How long has this been in the work? This book has been in the works for almost six years. Now, part of that is because uh, I had to, you know, pay the bills and, and do other things in the meantime. So this was, as much as I loved it and it was my passion, I had to do it on the side. So, and the other part was, uh, you know, I had to, I had to start from, I had to start over a couple times because mm-hmm. I uh, just wasn't quite getting to what I wanted. Now, are you the type of writer that has a? A, when you have the time, a clear schedule, like this is how I'm, I'm going to write in the morning and then eat, or I'm going to write in the evening and smoke a cigarette. Is there a, is there a ritual to your writing? You know, I've gone through spurts of both, where I'm regimented and I'm working every day and I'm loving it, and then I go through uh, periods where I just literally can't motivate myself to do anything, and I have to uh, kind of find that sweet spot where I'm in the right frame of mind if I'm too stressed out about things, I can't write. And okay, and one thing, knowing you a little bit, uh, you know, dogs play a key role in this book, and I, I am a dog man all the way. But I have these days been thinking about getting a big, fat, lazy cat. I thought you were a cat man, not a dog man. <laughs> I love both. I, I am a cat guy. I, I love my cat. I have a, I have a big thirty pound forest cat who is a big sweetheart. Um, <clears throat> but. You know, when it comes to writing, cats aren't really great subjects. They don't do much. They don't interact. You know, you can't really make readers care about a cat the way you can a dog. Yeah, the cat looked at me in an aloof manner like, what the hell are you looking at? Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not really a great support animal right there. Half the right, right. Well, it depends on the cat, I suppose. Um, I didn't start off thinking dogs would play a big role in the story, by the way. And then by the time I was, uh, you know, finishing up my uh, my outline and realizing that there were going to be three dogs in, in the story, I was like, that's that's odd, but it works, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> See, and I, I would have trouble, this is just me, um, back to kind of the, the habits. I, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the Sober October thing. I uh, decided to kick, because I had developed this nasty habit, uh, dipping, snuff, chewing tobacco, grizzly wintergreen pouches to be specific. And mm. uh, I'd say, I'm just going to stop, cold turkey. Um, so I've been going through a lot of gum, and I haven't touched the stuff in a month now. So I, I think I'm, I'm over it. But I thought about uh, you know writing the other day, and I realized, oh no! And, you know, back when I, and this is how we used to know each other. For the f- folks who don't know out there in the audience, I used to be an editor of a website. I would I would throw some some writing at, um, mm-hmm. and a big part of my habit when I would pound out a quick daily article would be. Uh, putting some tobacco in the mouth so it's uh, right i'm gonna have to get over that trigger next time i, I just battle with the blank page 
I can, uh, I can relate for sure. Um, you know, uh, six years I've been working on this. So I went through a couple bouts of, um, <clears throat> where I was drinking quite heavy, um, some, some issues with, uh, substance abuse occasionally. Um, so there are different parts of the book where I was, uh, perhaps, um, imbibing too much to get inspiration. Um, but, uh, you know, then there were parts where I was stone sober and, um, I think that, uh, you know, in the end, what they say is true. Uh, you know, you could write, you could write on, uh, on alcohol, you could write drunk, but make sure you edit sober. <laughs> right. Well, I love, uh, George, you remember, you, have you heard of George Carlin's virtual and he would ride because he would write out like, you know, his whole comedy hour, he would write out like a huge monologue and, mm-hmm. uh, he said he would write stone sober, completely sober. But then, and he wasn't a drug guy. He didn't like drugs. Well, maybe at a certain point in his life. But he he claims he wasn't a big drug guy, especially not a weed guy. But he would write sober his whole hour, and then he would take like a puff or two on a joint. And then, he would, as he put it, it's punch-up time. That's, I mean, I guess <laughs> that's the comedian aspect, I suppose. But uh, Right. Yeah, and it's just, it fascinates me with, like, different writers' process. How, I mean, we all think, like, okay, talking's one thing, and, and radio, I, I've met some other hosts, podcast hosts, radio hosts, and you just, you sit, you talk, and it's pretty much the same thing. With writers, there's always seems to be a different process and how you, you go about it, and uh, you also ghostwrite and to pay the bills, and I mean, mm-hmm. is it... Is it different with each person you're meeting, with each person, each project? Like, okay, how this person thinks, so I it might have to, I have to adapt to where they're coming from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, ghostwriting is a whole different animal. It's about really getting to know the person and getting to be comfortable, uh, kind of uh, with their words, with their with their tone, and working through a process of uh, co- cooperation and um, back and forth where I really try to zero in on and, and capture their voice. When I write fiction, I get to have fun with it. It's all me. Um, so that's where I, uh, you know, that's my playtime, and that's where I uh, get to really shine and, and, and experiment with, you know, different ideas or different ways to approach phrasings. Well, and I could tell, um, and again, folks, do me a favor, do Keith a favor, and it's not even a favor. We're doing you a favor by recommending the book, The Line. It's on Amazon.com right now. The Line by Keith Farrell. Uh, order it right now. It's in paperback, on Kindle. If you already are a reader, you have Kindle Unlimited. It's free. So just order it right now. The Line with Keith Farrell on Amazon. Also visit KeithFarrell.com. And, you know, you said earlier... And I'm I really share whatever you like, share nothing. Uh, it came from personal experiences, and all my I'm pointing out here right now is that I could feel at particular parts at, in the book from different characters' perspectives. I could feel you. I could feel that anger. I could feel that disgust. I could, uh, in a way, sometimes feel like I wish I could have done that to this sob. Um, and I don't know where that necessarily is coming from, but it was palpable in the book in the best way possible, in a in a inappropriate way, I would put it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I will say that uh, every writer will tell you that you know that they write for themselves, and in that way, um, you know, every character um, is, is at least a part of me, uh, which is really weird and kind of troubling to <laughs> pick apart sometimes. But either way, <laughs> um, you know, my experiences, um, you know, from from whatever they are, I told you I, I lived a, a life where I ended up um, running with a, a, a lot of people in, in a counterculture environment, and it was a party culture. It was nonstop. And a lot of those people, um, you know, later on in life when I reconnected with them after I had stopped living that lifestyle and moved on to be a you know, responsible adult for the most part, I connect with these people later on in life and, um, you know, and see the problems they're having with. And, um, mm. you know, shortly before I started writing the book, there was uh, several events in my life um, regarding people who were very close to me that, that all had the similar theme of, uh, you know, this, this disease um, ruining them and watching heroin flood through my communities and really just feeling, you know, angry, um, resentful, mm. and then guilty at the same time uh, when you resent somebody for using because it hurts you personally, then you have to struggle with the guilt that comes with that because then you feel like you're resenting somebody you care about. Um, so it's, there's a lot of emotions there. And as I said, writing this book was a very cathartic process for me. I was able to sort through a lot of the uh, different cathartic, uh, conflicting emotions with different characters. And it was, uh, you know, so I'm glad that that emotion came through and that you could feel that, that there. And, and I hope that helps make the characters feel more real. It certainly does, and, and folks, if you're interested in what it truly is, an, an epidemic in this country, I'm, I mean, you know me, Keith, I'm all about, you know, liberty and let people do what they want. I can sometimes be callous at the end of the day. It's it's people's responsibility, but I also understood, especially reading the book, uh, the perspectives of how predators will hook people in, you know, sort of prey on people's weaknesses. I understood mm -hmm. the, the the crazy mix of emotions because I mean luckily I haven't had heroin touch me personally or in, in my very personal circles but I know friends I know people have been hooked on that stuff uh, I've seen how people who are hooked on some sort of opioid how they uh, have trouble even functioning without it um, and it's it's just very difficult and I think the best way to handle a lot of these topics is the way your book does. Instead of it being, and this is just, I guess, my perspective, instead of it being sort of a political platform, instead of it being, we're going to do something about this uh, from the top of the mountain, and whether from the White House or the Senate or your congresswoman um, or man, I, I like the idea of, no, we need to figure out the personal responsibilities in these matters. And that isn't just blaming people who are addicts, obviously not. This is how can, who's enabling, who's maybe not being considerate enough, who's not right. drawing it up. It, I mean, it gets so complicated and complex to each particular relationship that your book fleshes that out in a way that, say, a simple conversation like we're having right now can't. Uh, it's right. very right. well done in that regard. Thank you. How do you think we go about uh, if putting on, you know, stepping away from fiction, looking at the world as we're looking at now? How do you think we go about 
solving what really is uh, an epidemic at this point in this country? Well, there's no easy solution there. Um, I think it does start with more compassion and more understanding, obviously. Um, as far as, you know, national-wise, policy-wise, I don't think we can continue to treat a health epidemic as a criminal issue. Um, at the same time, I think we need to separate um, the people that are willing to um, prey on others, the institutional frameworks that support these sort of things, whether they be banks, international banks laundering cartel money, um, all the way down the crime family, organized crime. That, that sort of thing, I think, um, needs to be separate from the, the equation. I think we need to have a, a, a somewhat of a law enforcement um, approach to that while maintaining a, uh, a proactive, uh, supportive health approach to addicts Amen. and users. Amen. Um uh, I really, yeah, because I think your average addict, it really is a, it's a, it's a health issue physically. It's a mental health issue. Uh, the different just process going in their head, uh, why, whether they're predisposed. Mm -hmm. But uh, to your point, I think the current crime syndicates out there, uh, whether or not say you, if you legalize cannabis nationwide, and they're not getting as much money from that, they'll find something else. Um, oh, yeah. And those networks are there, and in some way, those networks uh, can be dried up one way or another. It could be, it's like you said, it's complicated, a, a combination of factors. Well, uh, Keith, we're, we're pretty much out of time this evening. Uh, it's good catching up with you, number one, man. Good talking about the book. Um, really loved Thanks. it. Uh, again, the folks, the book's called The Line. His name is Keith Farrell. You can go to keithfarrell.com and... Um, I'm hoping that you, I hope it doesn't take six years. I want another one, man. Uh, <laughs> it's because it's great. Uh, great. Thanks, Joey. Great read. We're entertaining read. Looking at, uh, looking at my next one next year, hopefully late next year. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And, uh, I hope everybody out there listening cares about this issue or just wants a compelling read. We'll, we'll check it out on Amazon and check out your website and your work. So, uh, I'm going to hit, the go home button here, but I appreciate you calling in tonight and hope you have a good rest of the day and let's not go too long without chatting. All right, Joey. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And his name's Keith Farrell. Check out the book, The Line on Amazon. Do it now, folks. Do it now. And that means my work day is done and tomorrow is Friday. Lord, who knows what I'm going to talk about Friday. We've talked about scary movies. We've talked about well, because I can't help myself, Prince, this week, we've talked about anti-Semitism. And now, the heroin and opioid epidemic. So, I might lighten things up a little bit tomorrow night. Who in the hell knows? Either way, it's going to be fun. It's going to be compelling. It's going to be informational. And thank you so much for listening, folks. Again, if you can't catch the whole show, subscribe to the Joey Clark Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. You can find me on... Uh, Facebook, the Book of Faces. I'm now rocking the mustache for Movember. As I look kind of like your creepy uncle, but much younger, much sexier. Joey Clark on Facebook, just rocking the stash. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow night, folks. You all have a good rest of the night.